Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Here we are, part two of HMS Surprise, as Ian and Mike read through the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron novels. Last time, we looked at the beginning of the HMS Surprise story, really mostly based at Shore, where Stephen is uncovering what's really been going on in his career and context as an intelligence agent. And also at sea, as Jack, still in temporary command of HMS Lively, has been engaging in action ashore and then goes to seek out Stephen on an extended intelligence mission in Menorca. Disaster has befallen Stephen. Stephen was taken, captured, tortured, and against the odds, rescued in a daring nighttime mission in Port Mahon by Jack and the crew of the Lively. Stephen was horribly injured by the French, but is alive and has been brought back to London to convalesce, which is where we pick it up with Jack and Stephen. What does this novel have in store for us in the next couple of chapters, Mike? Yeah, we've got, as you say, Stephen's recovery, first in London, then moving up to Bath, where we run into the Williams family again. We pick up with Sir Joseph Blaine, who we talked about last week and in earlier books, and we cover a surprise that Stephen had for Sir Joseph and now a surprise that Sir Joseph has for Stephen and a surprise that Stephen has for Jack. Oh, this is great. I love surprises. I love surprises. <laughs> I do. And, and O'Brien does such a phenomenal job of using this word at least, you know, I, I think 150 times as we lead up to this. And, and this, as I look back on my what everybody calls it a circumnavigation, right? Rereading the yeah, canon yeah. that surprise, 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 surprise. <laughs> and I don't think it's a really great spoiler to say that HMS Surprise is going to be important to our story. This ship's almost going to become a character in her own right. So we can spend some time this episode learning for the first time what she means to, to Jack and then what she's going to mean to Stephen as well. Absolutely. And for you, you know, natural philosopher fans out there, we've got everything this week. We've got vampires, we've got rats, we've got a sloth, um, and and one of the most memorable lines of the canon. Oh, we have. Well, that's all still to come. But for now, what have we got? We've got Stephen in lodgings in London, convalescing and slowly, slowly recovering from his injuries. And we've got Jack helping him get about town with the assistance of Bondon and Killick, if I'm, I'm right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember, Ian, as we pick it back up here, that, you know, Stephen had kind of no sooner gotten back to England than Jack trying to help him out gets arrested for debt. So we've got um, Jack a little bit out of the picture. Jack a little bit out of the picture in more than one way. I do like that we get two, two great Patrick O'Brien recurring ideas. The first is the recurring idea that whenever Stephen's any any less than a hundred percent in terms of his health or his happiness or his security, he is the meanest, most ill-tempered, <laughs> most cantankerous person you could want. It's too true. And he hates that everyone. <laughs> he hates that everyone's looking after him. He hates that everyone's stoking the fire and filling the coach with straw and offering him possets and naguses and potions and shrubs and. He wishes them all to the devil, but in a way that doesn't convince anybody. Nobody's having any of it. Stephen's going to get looked after whether he likes it or not. Now, Jack even complains to Mrs. Moss, the landlady. He says, I've tried. I've tried to help him out. I've tried to look after him and nurse him, but 
this great Aubreyism, he's as obstinate as a bee in a bull's foot. Now, Jack Aubrey's got this habit, hasn't he, of using these sort of malapropish misturns of phrase in a, for really, really great comic effect. There are lists of them on the internet. There are lists of Aubreyisms. I have a feeling that we might have come across one that's not been widely written about, so I'm excited about that. That's right. So Stephen is as obstinate as a bee in a bull's foot. Pick that apart for us. What, what are the components of that? Well, you know, it's funny, Ian. I, I Like you, I looked all over for this one. I thought, you know, we'll go right to the gun room. The gun room usually knows about this. No help at the gun room on this one. And what I did find, um, Spurgeon, some early Christian writers writing back, talked a lot about people who are unable to distinguish between the difference between a bee and a bull's foot. So I suspect that uh, O'Brien has somehow pulled this out, but then in in the Aubreyism, as you say, Jack takes these little proverbs, these sayings, these wisdom things, and always gets them all twisted around here. Yeah. So he's probably got obstinate as a mule in one part of his brain, and it merges in another part of his brain with the bee and the bull's foot thing. Well, exactly. Yeah. We've got quite a few of these in the book, haven't we? We've got a, uh, a later one that I thought was really funny as well. Jack at some point is going to get some payment for his action in the taking of the Spanish treasure ships and the amount of money is not what he needed really to get out of debt. And he says, it's not what you'd call handsome, but a bird in the hand is worth any amount of beating about the bush. Don't you agree? Right. And yeah. so he's, he's definitely got his Aubreyism game on in this book, I think. Yeah. There's, there's one, I think, that comes later as well that says, uh, Jack saying, and we'll give them a little more context later. It's a, they won't be pleased, but they know we must catch the monsoon with a well-found ship. And they know they're in the Navy. They've chosen their cake and they must lie on it. And Stephen <laughs> replies, you mean they cannot have their bed and eat it? No, no, that is not quite that neither. I mean, I, I wish you would not confuse my mind, Stephen. <laughs> but these things happen over and over again. They've been in book one and Absolutely. book two. We haven't been calling them out, but it's just one of those secret delights that you say, ah, another Aubreyism. Absolutely. And I wonder if O'Brien had ideas for a few of them and he's kind of saving them up. They'll put them in special places as, as seasoning for the rest of the, the, the writing. Well, he, he seems to have a fond place in his heart, both for, as you say, twisting these things up in Jack's tongue. And then also, you know, in, in a conversation coming up shortly with Sir Joseph, Sir Joseph uses a little bit of a cliche or a proverb or something. And then Stephen immediately, you know, brings about 10 to mind, which O'Brien is so good about just sort of stream of consciousness and says, but yeah. he mentions none of them and then goes back on the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Stephen's talking to Blaine and they have to have this rather awkward continuing conversation about what to do next and what to make of the the unblinding of Stephen's identity as an agent. And Blaine is also paying close attention to how Stephen's recovery is getting on. And I was really struck by this account that Joseph Blaine gives to uh, his colleague, Mr. Waring. He's doing better today, said Sir Joseph. Far better, said Mr. Waring. He walked the best part of a mile on Thursday. I should never have believed it. You saw his body? Only his hands, said Sir Joseph. He must have uncommon strength of will, uncommon strength of constitution. He has. He has, said Sir Joseph. So th this is 
Patrick O'Brien trying to give the hint of just how unpleasantly Stephen's been maimed and injured in the proceeding of torture without without drawing it out for us and making it mawkish. But that also gives Sir Joseph the the chance to go on discussing Stephen's character and talking about where Stephen's at in his uh, in 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 the course of his life with wearing. Sir Joseph has told Stephen that he, Sir Joseph, is retiring and wearing is going to be his successor. Um, and so they're they're cultivating their top prize agent here and yeah. getting to know Stephen a little bit. And I and I think Waring is, you know, while he's already said that Waring really appreciates all of Stephen's work, Waring is really coming to appreciate what a unique individual Stephen is. And perhaps for such a philosopher kind of uh, genius here, also what a bit of a romantic he is. Sir Joseph's telling Waring, says, as I was saying, strong, but not without his weaknesses. He was blaming his particular friend for romantic notions the other day. Uh, And he goes on and on and on. And I should have been tempted to laugh. And then he gives this history of Stephen's background, which he compares to Don Quixote here. You know, an enthusiastic supporter of the revolution until 93, a United Irishman until the rising, Lord Edward's advisor, his cousin, by the way, um, and now Catalan independence, or perhaps I should say Catalan independence from the beginning, simultaneously with the others, but always heart and soul, blood and purse in some cause from which he can derive no conceivable personal benefit. Is he romantic in the common sense? Waring asked him. No. So chaste indeed that at one time we were uneasy. But then he assures him that there was one young lady one time that made them, you know, rest easy. They didn't have to have that particular worry with Stephen as an agent. Yeah. And a little interesting side note of the conversation is Patrick O'Brien illustrating what romantic philosophy meant to people in the early 19th century. So I, I think you know, Blaine is looking back on utilitarianism as one where you know personal benefit or consequences are the thing that we try and optimize. And that was a, a part, I think, of Enlightenment philosophy. And Stephen very often seems to reject Enlightenment philosophy. He doesn't like Rousseau, doesn't like any of the kind of the, the romantic, naturalistic, individualistic outpourings of early 19th century philosophy but he's absolutely nailed Stephen here that he has got that part of the romantic character which is that he's attached to causes and he's attached to ideals for sure and and these causes and ideals as you say in the romantic notion of that you know in a non-utilitarian way have ap- you know really do nothing for him but he goes yeah. after them and jack seems to have become one of those causes for Stephen as well so there's going to be this moment coming up where Stephen finds that Sir Joseph and the intelligence community and the Admiralty owe a favor. They owe a favor to Stephen and Stephen's going to cash it in, in with the intention of making that benefit Jack again. He did this at the end of Post Captain and he's doing it again, I think, now. Right. Yeah, here we go. Luckily, Sir Joseph is retiring and gets, if you will, one wish from the Admiralty genie. And to your point, he's going to cash it in on Stephen's behalf here for Jack. Because Jack, as you said, Jack was helping out right there in London or or right there getting getting Stephen off and uh, right at that time was arrested for debt. And and 
Stephen has told Sir Joseph about this and is very concerned. And Sir Joseph is also interceding on his behalf that way. That's right. So this is the moment where Jack learns. And I love the fact that we hear some of this plot being told out in the course of Stephen writing a letter, dictating to Sophie. And as the letter is read out and dictated, we get little side cuts into other bits of action that are now taking place. The announcement of the surprise and the mission to the Far East as the thing that Jack Aubrey is going to be engaged upon coming at the same time as Jack being then able to free himself from the sponging house suddenly triggers this cascade of motion and decision. And Stephen's able to say to Sir Joseph, no, I'm fine. A long hot weather cruise is going to suit me. Jack is raring to go a long spell away from the troubles and tribulations of being ashore is going to be great for Jack Aubrey. You can relieve yourself of this obligation and take the the great moment of your retirement to say, Jack Aubrey, Stephen Maturin, surprise, Governor Stanhope, go forth. So all of the embarkation and preparation almost tumbles out of the storytelling at this point. And it's funny and Stephen switched so rapidly from being a curmudgeon to being lighthearted and really funny and generous and kind as he's having this little kind of side conversation with Sophie. So absolutely true. Uh, and I don't want to jump ahead, but, and, and I don't even think we we talked about this as much, but it tickled me that you know, in order to get on the surprise, Stephen sets up uh, a route for Jack to take so that he can get there, he can arrive on a Sunday and not be arrested for debt. Sophie wants so badly to see him. So he's stealing Sophie away, bringing her up on a coach. Jack's riding down partway on a coach, actually a hearse that Killig uh, arranges. He's coming down with Bondin. You know, they've got uh, a coach. Stephen has a coach. The coaches are going to meet. Jack on the horse is going to meet them. And as Jack rides up, the coachmen that are driving Stephen and Sophie um, are afraid that this is a robber. And yeah, highwayman. Sophie says, Stephen, don't shoot him. And Stephen says, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not going to shoot him. And, and as this dark figure rides to the window, Stephen says, you know, spare me, spare me, take the girl, but spare me. And I, this is a little bit for me was a little bit of a new piece of Stephen's character. What great, but Sophie's having none of it. It's just Jack. I knew it was you the whole time. I just love that scene. <laughs> yeah. Stephen's really enjoying the fact that he set up his two friends, Sophie and Jack, and just can't resist. Yeah. Out of them both. Yeah. Absolutely. And and does that, you know, that that gracious gift that we all remember back from our college days and elsewhere gives them 30 minutes alone. <laughs> they Absolutely. And a sock on the door. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I'm sure it was all perfectly chased because this was the 19th century. Absolutely. So Jack is master of the surprise. Jack is captain of the surprise. He's a post captain and he's got a frigate, an honest to goodness frigate, HMS surprise. And one of the lines that I think we'll hear a lot in the book, and certainly I hear in my head as I remember the description that Jack always gives of um, HMS Surprise, I'm going to borrow the voice of Russell Crowe, who in the Master and Commander movie does a beautiful turn as Jack Aubrey singing the praises of the surprise. Would you call me an aged man of war, Doctor? Surprise is not old. No one would call her old. She's a bluff bow, lovely lions. She's a fine seabird. Weatherly, stiff, and fast. Very fast, if she's well handled. No, she's not old. 
she's in her prime. Nice. Nice. So let, let's use our standby for moving from one setting to another. Let's dip into the Wikipedia plot summary, which says at this point in the story, Aubrey and Maturin leave in the surprise to ferry an ambassador to the Sultan of Kampong on the Malay Peninsula. Aubrey hopes to find the French squadron commanded by Lenoir, who once took him prisoner. And sooner or later, surprise is going to be caught in the doldrums in the windless calms just north of the equator. Now, Mike, I noticed here that um, O'Brien uses this cinematic long-distance perspective trick. He did it in Master and Commander, and he's doing it again here. He gives us this god's eye view of surprise and where she's set in the world it's very very beautiful as well very striking image he talks about the sun being overhead in bombay at one instant which is their destination where they're headed for as their interim stop and at the same time it's just rising in the atlantic just north of the equator where surprise is becalmed and we follow the ray of light which is casting its silent deadening heat over bombay and that same ray of light is just breaking the dawn and lighting up the rigging of surprise becalmed and it's once again it's beautiful writing it is a beautiful scene and and i felt just a little bit awed and also a little cheated like what do you mean we're already in bombay oh no we're not as a matter of fact yeah, we are yeah. thousands of miles west and there's a lot to happen between that thousands of miles west and and ultimately getting to bombay there surely is and we've got a new well, partly new cast of characters as well. We've got some of Aubrey's old followers, and of course we've got Stephen and Killick and Bondon and the rest of them. We have a new lieutenant. We have Lieutenant Nichols. And I, when I first encountered the character of Nichols, he's described as being the slightly awkward, slightly lump and wan around the dinner table in the gun room. And that made me think of people like Lieutenant Parker in the Polycrest, who is a bit of a hard horse. Maybe think also a little bit of James Dillon in Master and Commander, who is the slightly moody, slightly sullen one, although for very deep character-led reasons. And I was wondering what role Nichols might be going to play. He's also, by the way, the one that early on exhibits some of the serious symptoms of scurvy, which is the dread disease, the dread deficiency that Stephen's wrestling with as the surgeon. Right. And they've, they've picked up, when they picked up the surprise, they really didn't have much of a crew. And so everybody pulled together as usual what they could get. And a number of them came off this ship, the Raccoon, which had been doing duty in the Americas for a very long time. And I guess walked straight off of that ship and on the onto the surprise with no break. No break. And no I, reason, I guess, particularly to favor captain goldilocks jack aubrey with any kind of loyalty or anything other than dejection really if they've turned straight over from one ship into another yeah tough life for sure yeah and it's tough enough being becalmed can you imagine just kind of floating around still you know in a patch of your own you know shipboard waste just hoping that one day the wind's going to pick up and they gradually gradually heave into sight of St. Paul's Rock, this really odd, isolated volcanic rock covered in bird dung and birds. And this is just part of the scenery to most of us. But for Stephen, this looks like an opportunity for a bit of natural philosophy. It really does. Stephen looks at this, this remote potential paradise, untouched by human hands, and is dying to go see it. 
but it's Sunday. And so, you know, you yeah. can't ask anybody to do any work on Sunday. That's right. And the person who offers to row him across is the sullen, dogged, surly, moody Lieutenant Nichols. And that, I guess, starts us thinking, oh, maybe now we're going to learn something about Nichols and the role that he plays. And he's obviously at, at, at a relatively low point, if it seems like a fun distraction for him on a Sunday, on his day off, to to get in a boat in the hot sun and row this slightly weird Einstein fella, the, the the philosopher surgeon, out to this hot, stinking, isolated rock. So, if, if that was his idea of a of a fun distraction, his life and his mood can't have been great to begin with. No, and it it's odd because you think, you know, Nichols says, "Oh, I'll, I'll take you." When he overhears Stephen asking Jack to ask somebody to take him, and Jack says, "You can't because it's Sunday." Um, and and you think, well, I wonder what's going to happen. And Stephen is starting to start a conversation with him. Nichols doesn't seem to be paying any attention to it. Stephen kind of goes back to thinking about studying his uh, his languages of India and his grammars there. And you're kind of wondering, where is this going? And it's, it's headed towards confession. And we use this word confession about this conversation in a, in a couple of different instances. And to Stephen, as somebody raised a Catholic, confession means something very, very specific. And he kind of remarks doesn't he, that Protestants don't observe the sacrament of confession and that as a substitute, (laughs) Protestants sometimes find their way to telling what's in their heart to a medical man. And Stephen's playing the role of of confessor. And Nichols says, I tell you what it is, I can't bear it, this long, slow death. And I think at this point in the conversation, it's not clear what he means by the long, slow death. But he goes straight on to explain he was ashore from the time the Uriel has paid off until I was appointed at the surprise and I had a disagreement with my wife. And we don't get the details of the disagreement except that there's just this deep, bitter wounding. This wretched guy has been trying to make amends. Stephen remarks to himself that he's heard the story before and we hear about this. The civil imitation of a married life, guarded words, politeness, restraint, the blank misery of nights and waking, the progressive decay of all friendship and communication. And this is just desolate. This guy is right at the end of his tether. And Stephen is the person to whom he confesses it. And I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that this is the nature of the confession and that it's Stephen to whom he's confessing. No, no. It's funny looking back. There's been a little interaction between Jack and uh, Poolings early, you know, Jack saying, Poolings, do you want to come? Oh, but won't your wife be upset? And we're getting little commentaries on marriage. And now here with Stevens thinking about prior confessions and then Nichols' confession here, this is, this is like you say, pretty, pretty tough stuff here. Very desolate, uh, you know, very unhappy. And so unhappy that Stephen's anticipating that Nichols might later on regret having unburdened himself. And he says, you know, regular confession is more formal, less detailed. Um, so this was far less satisfactory in its unsacramental aspect. At least a confessor was a priest for his whole life, whereas a doctor was such an ordinary being for much of the time, which makes him difficult to face over the dinner table after such privies. And again, I think there's a little bit of the regret of the intelligence agent there. You know, once you know the the dark side of a person and their character, it can be pretty hard to see them again in everyday life. And he's wondering whether Nichols and maybe also he, Stephen, are going to feel uncomfortable after this 
unburdening. Yeah, how is it going to be sitting around the gun room table with him day in and day out? And again, with the story takes a really strange turn. Again, in typical Patrick O'Brien style, it's very matter-of-fact. They're ashore. Nichols takes shelter under some clothing stretched between two oars for a for a sun canopy and Stephen is botanizing and then this massive squall hits the rock and by the way also hits the ship and there's this blinding storm of spray and seawater and rain and the storm clears and Nichols is gone yeah but before we get to that let's take a short break Welcome back. You're listening to Mike and Ian on The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Yeah, and and we know that from this little, what little description we have is Stevens running around on this rock that nothing grows there. There's no water there. It's pretty sheer, it seems like, that, you know, there was no way up on the one side, they had to row around to the other side to kind of get some handholds. So it's yeah. it's pretty desolate stuff, just completely covered, like you said, with birds and their excrement. But now, as as you say, after this horrific storm, no nickels, no boat, and as as Stephen kind of looks around, which is is a little endearing, he, he goes around a couple times trying to find nickels. Yeah. He also realizes climbing to the top, he can't see the surprise either. So. I used to wonder a lot about this, that we we never really uncover that there's no investigation into what might have happened or even speculation in Stephen's mind about whether Nichols chose to just drift off somehow and let the storm take him or whether it was an accident or whether Nichols was resigned somehow to his fate, whether this was a suicide. And I wondered about that. And I think I also later realized that this was a moment for Stephen to be told some things about what marriage and a relationship might involve on the on the dark side of a relationship between two people. And also then, as a result of this, or around this confession, and as a result of this extreme environment that he's been exposed to, to, to somehow be cured. Because he goes back aboard ship, of course, He's rescued by uh, the, the barge, I think, pulled by Bondon and a bunch of the uh, crew members. And we have this very lighthearted reunion. And Stephen describes now how having been parched and rained on and starved and dehydrated and burned almost to a cinder on this rock, that his physical injuries are almost renewed. He's almost become a phoenix, if you like. And there's something about this conversation in the episode of The Rock that O'Brien wanted us to use as some kind of catharsis for Stephen. And the 
the scientific part of my brain thought I, I really don't believe that any human being has ever been cured of terrible you know physical injuries by being doused and dehydrated and burned and then brought back to life I, I just can't believe that that's that that's a real thing but of course I think O'Brien must be talking to us about this, in, not in the sense of natural philosophy and Stephen's medical history, but in a sort of magical, realistic way, saying Stephen went through this so that he could recover from the wounds of the of, of torture and then begin to carry on the rest of the story, changed in some way, but restored in his physical capabilities. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because Stephen has been saying all along in this book to a, a multitude of different characters you know, I'm a salamander. I just need to be baked by the sun. It's that superheat that will revive me. And so there is this notion of magical realism. There's also a little notion of, as as O'Brien does sometimes, Stephen in the early 1800s, believing what he believes is a natural philosopher, uh, uh, you know, almost kind of creating his own placebo and then getting washed ashore on it. <laughs> That's a really good image, creating his placebo and getting washed ashore. I like that. So maybe, and you and I have talked a little bit about this, the, this this episode and the idea of the surprise to, to keep going with the heat analogy is in some way a crucible for Stephen. He goes through this process of extreme heat and extreme deprivation and extreme pressure and emerges on the other side a, a bit transformed, a, a bit liberated and a bit made better but also a, a bit transformed physically and spiritually. Very definitely. Yeah, and this links back to the point you made at the beginning. If post-captain is about Jack's mistakes, this story is turning out to be about Stephen and his development and the mistakes that he might be yet to make and the mistakes that he's making day by day as we go along. Yeah, and he's got this, you know, he's he's. we talked earlier about he's walking and walking more. We'll hear him climbing up the rigging and, 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 you know, just really challenging himself, swimming, that he really is, you know, even though this the sun has really renewed him at least a lot in his spirit, he continues to really work on himself physically to get better and better and better. And we wonder uh, perhaps what's he doing with himself emotionally, especially in light of this the darkness of this confession of Nichols and what we know as some of Stephen's past history and the fact that <laughs> Diana Villers is waiting for him in Bombay. Very true. Very true. I think that we don't know where he takes that internally in terms of his emotion, but I, I think the next couple of chapters of the story show us one of the outlets of that, show us one of the emotional consequences of him deciding to turn to a different aspect of his life and look for positivity because we get now the, the story of Stephen and animals and the animals become part of the, the narrative here in a way that I don't think they did even in, in the earlier two books. So let's, let's turn to Stephen's, <laughs> Stephen's botanizing life. We get a link to that in the first conversation that Stephen and Jack have about perhaps touching a shore further north than Rio, perhaps touching a shore in order to stock up on emergency supplies of, anti-scorbutics like green vegetables and fresh meat and Stephen confesses to Jack that while he was on the rock he uh, kept kept alive by drinking the blood of boobies these birds that were on the rock and Jack realizes that Stephen's also thinking that there are vampires in the forest in Brazil right and, and right. vampires is kind of the slightly sarcastic word that Jack uses 
as a shorthand for all of the living creatures that Stephen wants to go ashore and collect and observe and make notes about. Right, and right. He talks dismissively a couple of times about, yeah, yeah, you just want to go ashore and see some of your vampires. Exactly. Exactly. And and Stephen doesn't even have to get ashore quite yet to have some interesting animals. You know, he's we've heard leading up to this before he got marooned on, on St. Paul's Rock that Stephen had an experiment going. He has these rats that, uh, you know, as, as the rations were getting down a little bit in the ship, scurvy was starting to increase again that uh, uh, they're, they're low on rations. And the midshipmen, you know, as we know from from past stories are eating rats. Well, Stephen says, you know, he talks about his rats. They're, they're saying about how the rats on the ship are not, you know, not very well fed and, and everything. And Stephen's saying, well, he feeds his own rats ship's biscuit with lots of butter and they're fat and they're happy. Um, and he, lo and behold, he finds out that while he's been on the rock, um, his rats have been taken and are gone. And, and he's pretty upset about this. And, he reveals to them, to his great delight, he reveals in their discomfort at the discovery that he's also been experimenting on the rats and feeding them this red dye called madder. And madder is a substance that penetrates to the bones. It was used by naturalists as a way of measuring bone growth and bone formation in, in animals that became dissected. I don't know whether Stephen knows. It's certainly true that madder has no great pharmacological effect on humans, but this is the early 19th century. And as far as anybody's concerned, Madder could be poisonous. And Stephen really delights in the fact that he can tease the midshipmen about the fact that they have eaten these rats and that they should all now confess to have eaten the rats because if they confess, then they can be saved from the perhaps dread consequences of eating this dye, this red dye. And this harks back a little bit to the earlier conversation about midshipmen and uh, attending to their, uh, Jack has been attending to their, mathematical education and Stephen attends a little bit to their moral education by saying well you stole my rats so now you're going to have to take some really unpleasant medicine um, while we clean your system of this matter and I love the quote where uh, Stephen sends a message to Jack saying can the young gentleman be dispensed with for a few hours or perhaps a day and Jack sends a message back saying have him for a whole week as far as I'm concerned that's right so they get whatever kind of purgative they get and later on, the Lieutenant Hervey's complaining, Where the mid- why can't I get a midshipman? Babington says he's in the head. The other midshipman says he's in the head. What's going on? And they, none of them will meet his eye and confess to the fact that they've had several days worth of, of bathroom visits because of them being physically and morally cleaned out by Stephen in revenge for eating the rats. Well, they, they do. They've, they've wrapped up the rat problem, but the scurvy is continuing to have its impact on the the crew uh jack keeps a little bit suspicious that steven just wants to get ashore he doesn't want to get entangled up they've actually drifted now well towards brazil and they're going to dock at rio anyway that's under their orders but steven shows a number of the patients to jack and the effects of the scurvy Jack becomes quite convinced and uh, so convinced that he even returns and tells Killick he's going to skip uh, the next meal <laughs> after everything he's seen and that they're going to stop, which now sets up another opportunity for um, for Stephen to go ashore for some more animals. But Jack makes him swear, you know, to give his oath that he will not bring back any vampires. And God bless him. Stephen's good for his word. Not a vampire was there to be found. 
Right. And from from a distance, Jack sees Stephen coming back in the boat with some great, great hairy thing wrapped around Stephen. I think what what the, what the heck kind of a vampire is this? And Jack is so mad watching him. You know, um, you know, he he thinks it's some loathsome great vampire, the most poisonous kind, no doubt. And and then he thinks, you know, surely Stephen is going to, you know, he's he's giving him sacred oath. That you know, he comes up to the side, he'll be all upset, but he's not. He's just as happy as he can be, and and Jack confronts him, and to which Stephen educates Jack a little bit to say, Jack, this is not a vampire, this is a sloth, and you know, he's just a wonderful one. Yeah, you know, when Jack tells affectionate, discriminating sloth, you can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I love that affectionate and discriminating. It's just beautiful, and apparently he's affectionate and discriminating loving the world for everybody except for Jack, which is quite the (laughs) moment there, you know, that uh, it says the sloth turned its round head, fixed its eyes on Jack, uttered a a despairing wail and buried its face again in Stephen's shoulder, tightening its grip to the strangling point. (laughs) (laughs) The sloth is clearly attached to, to, to many things and most especially Stephen clearly can't get along with Jack, and we have no basis for this at all. Um, There's this commentary about Jack. You know, Jack's of a sanguine temperament. He liked people and was surprised that they didn't like him. And this readiness to be pleased was was important for him. Um, seemed to remain intact as far as horses, dogs, and sloths were concerned. And it wounded him to see tears come into the creature's eyes when Jack walked into the cabin. He just wants to be loved. Exactly. He's a lover, not a hater. It's so funny. And the sloth has a very natural, very unguarded affection for Stephen. And maybe we're expected to believe that that's almost like the affection between a parent and a child. And we get to contrast that with the kind of affection that only eventually springs up between the sloth and Jack. Do you want to tell the story of how the sloth finally makes it into friendship with Jack? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, Jack is trying everything uh, to get on the good side of the sloth here. He gives him things to eat. He talks to him. He even attempts Portuguese, but nothing answers. And then one day, Jack feeds him with a little bit of cake dipped in grog. And it says they became became good friends with a regular meeting whenever grog is served out. And, you know, the sloth becomes really a a bit of a lush here. Uh, And so Jack and the sloth are are drinking together, essentially. And at one point, you know, Stephen walks in. Uh, the sloth is, is curled up on Jack's knees, breathing heavily. The sloth has a bowl for his grog. Jack has a bottle. Stephen sees both of them empty and, you know, is examining his sloth. And, and he finally realizes what's happening because he tries to hang the sloth up on his on his rope to sleep and he kind of hangs on with a foot in one hand and the other foot in hand you know are kind of falling off our our you know we we can remember from our <laughs> the days of our youth where we might have been in this kind of position and Stephen is just shocked and one of my favorite lines in the canon which you have to deliver <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen looks around sees the decanter smells the sloth and cries jack you have debauched my sloth just love this line. And oh I love the fact gosh. that, I mean, there, there are many animals that are talked about in all 2021 books. 
Underslot has really got a place in the hearts of all of the people that you see writing and talking about online. The the Sloth is the character that people come back to. Every day I go on the internet looking for stuff about the Aubrey Maturing Canon and I see pictures of a sloth or imagery of a sloth or I see a coat of arms featuring a sloth. It's like this this is the animal that people took to their hearts and it's very, very I, adorable. He's not going to be around for very long, um, but he's around for now and he's absolutely part of this renewed, you know, Stephen learning how to be okay with himself and how to how to be attached uh in a positive way yeah yeah and getting 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 indulged a little bit in his natural philosophy as well absolutely i don't want to miss the name of the sloth do you remember the sloth's name the sloth's name is lethargy (laughs) lethargy it's just so beautiful (laughs) i love that and and very 19th century as well exactly (laughs) if if jane austen had a sloth she'd call it lethargy i think that's very good (laughs) i can only imagine right with an unscheduled stop we've been briefly in touch with the land we've managed to stock up the ship with lime juice and green vegetables and fresh meat we've made friends with the sloth we cross the line and um, governor stanhope and his secretary get to see the celebration of neptune coming aboard and all the slightly strange um, party goings on that happen on any ship crossing the line and i i want to say that i'm really enjoying how jack and the surprise are doing some what I would call blue water sailing. You know, they've done lots of coastal sailing. They've been mm-hmm. in the Mediterranean a little, but now they're doing a kind of sailing that calls for, I think, a new set of skills and strengths from the crew and from Jack and also from the ship that they're embarked on. Because sailing long distances, sailing far, far offshore, challenges Jack's navigation, challenge the whole crew's seamanship, and he's got a challenge to surprise herself as well. But it just seems that the bluer and saltier the water gets, the happier and the more capable Jack becomes. Even though he's far away from Sophie, there's that saying, isn't there? Salt, salt water washes all away. Jack is in his element. I don't think you can say the same for the envoy, though. No, no. The envoy really is having a difficult time on board the ship. And, um, you know, seems to have had a few maladies when they started. Uh, it, every time they get into rougher water, it gets worse. Um, he gets very sick at sea, and this is going to be a long voyage. You know, the Dutch uh, now have the Cape of Good Hope after the last treaty, and so the, the surprise has to sail below Africa to go east. So they've, you know, they've they've gone off, they've gone over, they touched at Rio. They're you know going to have to head down below Africa to go east to come back to India. They're in the roaring 40s. Yeah. Yeah. And even Stephen seems to know this. At some point he says, oh, I suppose it's fair to assume that 45 degrees south latitude means that we're going to see a, a fair gale of wind. Yeah. And, and and that they are. That they are. And I think the first feature that we get of being in high southern latitudes is albatrosses. And I love the moment where Stephen and Bondon between them notice their first albatross. Oh, I do too. As, as Stephen has, you know, he's so excited about seeing an albatross. He's asked Jack about it. Jack's put an order out to the whole crew. Everybody's been telling him every time they see anything, but it's not an albatross. But Stephen, who, and, and another, you know, again, this is, some of this is the mistakes of Stephen in this book, but some of it is the goodness and kindness of Stephen. 
Stephen realized back in Bath that Bondin didn't know how to write. So Stephen and Bondin have been going way up into the rigging. Stephen's been teaching him how to write. Bondin's been writing and they've, you know, he's gotten better and better and better. And today's the day that they're going to start working on verse. And uh, Stephen is going to be reciting some verse. Bondin is going to be writing it down to practice his hand. And, uh, you know, Stephen goes into this whole beautiful rhyme about their voyage and on the lunar world securely pry by God. I believe I see the albatross. Believe I see the albatross, said Bondin's lips silently. It don't rhyme. Another line, sir, maybe? And, but receiving no answer from his rigid teacher, he looked up following his gaze and said, Why you do, sir? I dare say he'll fetch our wake directly and overhaul us. Wonderful, great birds they are. Though something fishy without you skin them. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the bird is food. The albatross, I think, is foretelling the fact that they're in, as we said, high latitudes, that they're facing a big challenge in this stage of their ocean crossing. Jack even alludes to this when he tells Stephen that the hands have a superstition regarding albatrosses and that the hands will maybe go fishing to try and catch the albatrosses. They won't like it. You'll get wry looks and short answers. And half the older hands will start prophesying woe that we shall run into a widow maker or hit a mountain of ice. Come, said Jack, reaching for his fiddle. Let's play the Boccherini through before we turn in. We may not have another chance this side of the Cape with you upsetting the natural order of things. Many a grizzled head was shaken on the forecastle with ominous words, profoundly true, and not altogether outside Stephen's hearing. Ah, we shall see what we shall see. Yeah, at this point, I'm getting this distinct rhyme of the ancient mariner vibe. You know, <laughs> what is this albatross? What is this redemption for some character? What are the woes that are going to befall everybody here? Yeah, there's foreboding, and it doesn't come from the French. It doesn't come from the the enemy navy. It doesn't even come from enemy agents. This foreboding just comes from where they are in the world and the voyage that they have to make across the bottom of the world. We're now sailing into Arctic waters. We've got this potential doom of the rhyme of the ancient mariner and this, you know, these uh, grizzled seamen prophesying doom here. And for those of you who are worried about lethargy, let's be quick to note that they did stop off in Rio and the Franciscans were kind enough to take uh, lethargy off Stephen's hand. He's there, a secret drinker of the altar wine. Um, which sounds like if, if I'm going to come back reincarnated one day, I might want to be a sloth in if with the San Fran, <laughs> with the, with the Irish Franciscans at Rio, but lethargy's fine. I'm not so sure about the surprise, her crew and our seasick envoy. No, I think they're in for a tough time. And I think we might have to hear about that some more in our next episode. Great idea. So Ian, what do you say next time to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart.
great. I love surprises. I love surprises. <laughs> I do. And 